say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Feminine Roadmap Podcast. I'm your host, Gina Farrar. Each week, I bring you an inspiring conversation to help you navigate the challenges and changes of midlife so that you can not only survive, but thrive in your second half. Hello, Feminine Roadmappers. It is Gina here, and today we are going to be talking about how after life-altering setbacks, there is hope. My guest today, Keisha Blair, is going to be sharing a message that she created and used to help her get through losing her husband at 31 years old. Keisha is the author of Holistic Wealth, 32 Life Lessons to Help You Find Purpose, Prosperity, and Happiness. So Keisha, without further ado, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It is my pleasure. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Why don't we just start with your story? What mm-hmm. led you to this place and writing mm-hmm. this book? Yeah, no, thank you for, for that. So, so yes, I've been on this journey for over nine years now. And it started, um, you know, after my husband died, I started pouring out my heart on paper. Um, He, you know, he died of a very rare illness. The circumstances were just, um, you know, just horrific. And so I had to come to grips with with all of that. And so I started pouring out my heart on paper. And, you know, at first it just started out with um, the emotions I was dealing with, what I was going through. And then it started to unfold like a memoir. And then afterwards, you know, I wrote this article that did so well, it it went viral, and it spoke about these 40 life lessons I learned from my husband's death. And so I I didn't expect that response. And and, and when it did, an agent said to me, you know, that's the book you need to write now. That's the book I think people need to hear right now in terms of those 40 life lessons and how you've basically come through it. And so I started writing. And that is the book that, um, you know, we're talking about today. That's the story of how I got started. So it was a very, very long process of basically going through the motions of the grief and the tragedy and also taking steps that I outlined, you know, like in the book and then really coming full circle. Like I talk about, you know, coming this 180 degrees in the book. Mm. Um, and, and so I'm at the place now where I can basically, um, you know, tell others that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you can get through this. What a powerful thing to experience because most of us don't expect to lose our spouse so young. 
Mm-hmm. And you have children as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have children. As a matter of fact, when he died, that was eight weeks after I gave birth to my second child. So I remember walking into the hospital room that night thinking in the emergency room thinking this can't be happening. I just gave birth eight weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And so when I walked in, you know, I didn't know how serious it was. I didn't know what was happening. You know, he just complained of a pain And we called an ambulance and we went into the ER. And then within three hours, he was gone. And nobody had any explanations. The doctors didn't know what was going on. The disease is so rare that most doctors never see it in their lifetime. Only in textbooks. And so most of them don't know how to diagnose, how to recognize the signs and symptoms. You know, sometimes we think we go into the ER and and yeah, we're in capable hands. But we never, ever think, what if I have something that's so rare that, that a doctor won't know what to do? And so that's what happened that night. And it took a year for the autopsy results. Um, they had to assemble a team of experts to examine the case. It was horrific. And so when you go through something like that, where you think, wow, like it just blows you away. It shatters your world. You really, really have to take a step back to think about, okay, what do I do now? And what have I really just gone through? And so that's why I think people, you know, like who've been through, you know, very, very bizarre circumstances like I've been through end up wanting to document this and to put this and make sense of a world that seemingly does not make sense at the time. And, and so, and so I did, and that's how I've come to this point is I had to make sense of a world that didn't make sense anymore. I had to make sense of something that made no sense, not even to, to doctors, um, you know? And so and so that's, that's kind of why um, we're here today and, and what got me started on this process. It, it was just like, well, how do I help others to make sense of things that seemingly are just beyond anything we've ever heard of, beyond anything we could have ever imagined? Because I don't think anybody could have ever imagined. You know, you know, we talk about all the time, you know, like everyone has to go, everyone has to die but you never think, wow, it's going to be from something that nobody has ever heard of. It's, it's, it's so rare that, you know, most doctors don't have a clue, even from a biochemical perspective, how to test for it. Mm-hmm. And so, and so sudden and so young too. So and so sudden and so young. Elements. Lots of different elements. Exactly. Mm. So you spent that time journaling through your emotional process, which I honor you for that because that's an emotional intelligence tactic to find a way to express it instead of Mm -hmm. getting buried by it, you know, Mm -hmm. because I think if there were one thing I could take just from this little bit you've shared so far is how important it is that we give ourselves an outlet and we hold a space for those emotions and really kind of truly experience them. And I think writing is such a powerful way to express it. You don't have to write a book like you did, but to write that out. So as you were writing, 
when did the 32 kind of life lessons really begin to crystallize? How did mm-hmm. you get to that point? Was it one of those things where you were just navigating and navigating and trying to swim and you were able to look back? Like, how did that work mm-hmm. for you? Yeah, because at the time, let's say at the time I wrote that article where the 40 life lessons came out, um, I was already at a point where I'd come through the absolute worst of it. I had been on a path where I had basically redefined my life. I, um, you know, I was at a path where I could really look back and think about, okay, I'm at a really good place right now. What are these lessons that I would pass on to others? Mm -hmm. And so as I wrote that article, um, I thought about the memoir because a lot of those lessons came out of that process that I started. And I thought about all the aspects of the journey and the steps that got me through it. And those are the steps that are documented in that, you know, in, in that were documented in that article. And now in this book, we've narrowed down the 40 to 32. And those are the steps that are, are documented. And it's every step of the way. And, and, you know, when people read the book, they'll see it. It, it, it really flows from a story. And it really flows from the beginning to the end and the steps. And so it's a natural flow. And you see how... I got to the point of, okay, this is how I, I'm redefining, you know, my life on my terms. And this is how I think in terms of a success framework, how we can do that, even in the midst of going through these types of tragedies and setbacks is, well, yeah, this is, this is a natural way of finding our purpose, even in the midst of those things. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, with everything that we go through, it's, well, I know I need to walk that road that's uniquely mine. And I know I need to fulfill that. And how do I still do that with what I've been through? And so those are the, the, the 32 life lessons. So how, how much time passed from the time that you lost your husband to that viral article of the 40? Because it started out at 40. How much time was that? That was, um, that was like eight years or almost eight years. Okay, so the reason I asked that question is I'm thinking the process, I'm sure, is different for each person, the way Mm -hmm. that we deal with our emotions and, you know, Mm -hmm. the kind of support that a person has. So Mm -hmm. how was that eight years for you in terms of support? What did it look like for you Mm -hmm. um, relationship-wise? Were you close to family? Were you by yourself? Like, how did you navigate that in community with other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the eight years, um, you know, it seems like a long time, and and it is. And at that, by that point, my my life had changed substantially. Um, I was remarried, you know, had another child. So like it, it, it really had come already, um, almost almost full circle. But like in the beginning, lots of support to get through it, and from family and from friends you know, I had young kids. And so I needed that to be able to, to go back to work and to, to, to have a life. And so you'll see in the book that I talk about taking time to renew and refresh. I took a, I took a sabbatical. That's what I did. And that really helped me to put things into perspective because I was, I took an unpaid year from work and I could kind of think about what I wanted to do, what, how I wanted to move forward think about what I wanted for my family, my two kids. At the time I had two sons and kind of 
how I was going to make that work. And that time was invaluable to me, and you'll see it in the book, just really invaluable in terms of not only healing and recovering from the trauma, because there are so many physical aspects to grief that, you know, people don't talk about, you know, like the insomnia and, you know, people have, you know, like tummy troubles and various, various physical side effects. And so even just to get myself on a path to eating right and to exercising. And so all of that forms part of the book because I had to take the time to almost heal physically and emotionally mm-hmm. and spiritually as well. Like I really had to take the time to, to um, get myself back on track, to feel, you know, like me again and to see how I would move forward. So that, that time was a very important time and it took a while, you know, it takes time for us to move through, you know, like some people will, you know, live in a different house. Like if people make, make, have to make life-changing decisions when these things happen, like, let's face it, like some people will have to move to a new town to adjust. Some people have to sell their home. Some people have to do various things because now your life has been upended. It's not just like, it's, it's not something simple. It, it, it requires so much tremendous change that it means taking the time to really figure out what, the next steps are going to be and how do I heal from this and how do I get myself back on track again? Mm-hmm. So when you were working through that process and you were, you had your two children, you took a sabbatical from work, you were journaling through all of this part of the journey, correct? This was the journaling was starting after your husband died. Yes. Pretty quickly. Okay. At what point did you realize that there was a process you were using, you know, in your ability to cope? And in what role did other people play, like your ability to be supported and ask for support? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, at what point I felt like I was really outlining a process that was so long afterwards. I had no clue what I was doing consciously. I was just like, yeah. I have to make a change and I need to take time. And everybody said, don't do it. Don't do it. Like, you know, like you're taking one year. And so it, it really didn't seem at the time, like a good idea to many people. Like so many things didn't seem like a good idea. You know, mm-hmm. everybody was just like, Oh no, you know, um, what will happen if this and that? And so you'll see in the book, when I talk about chapter two, you know, when I, I feel like sometimes, you know, we know in our heart and I talk about intuition too, in the book, you know, we know in our heart what we need because of what we've been through. And sometimes, you know, people mean good. And sometimes, you know, they think they know, but because of what we've experienced, I think we have this sixth sense to know what we need. And so, um, I didn't really know I was even starting a process for anything. I just knew that my world had gone flat and I needed to get out from where I was, you know, from the city and and just, you know, try to make sense of it all. And so the point I kind of figured was long after, you know, it was long after I was like, wow, like all of this meant so much because of the fact that I was able to do X, Y, and Z. And because of that, I was able to get gain strength 
from within. And when I talk about the motivation from within in the book, this is what I'm talking about. It was, it, it, it's talk, it, it, it means getting strength from the inside. And so I had to do that in order to move forward. And so many people, um, you know, that came into my life at different points really enriched it in so many different ways. And you'll see in the book, I talk about relationships. It's an entire section because I feel like our relationships are part of our holistic wealth. Mm -hmm. And I say that in the book because this is what became evident to me was that, you know, our relationships are so multifaceted and people make an impact on us in so many different ways. We're not even really consciously thinking about until we have time to really sit back. Like I'll give you an example from the book. When I was on sabbatical, I met so many powerful women who were living in their purpose, doing what they love to do, and were really achieving, you know, in their different fields. And it was only on that sabbatical that I looked at these women. I was like, wow, look at these women walking in their purpose, doing what they want to do. They don't fit the traditional mold, um, but they're doing well at it. And they impacted my life just by doing that. And so there are different ways in terms of how our relationships impact our world. Mm. And, you know, when I came back from that sabbatical, that was one of the, you know, the key lessons in terms of our relationships. And that forms a, a big part of the book and even the article that I wrote. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I didn't know that this was going to end up being a framework for holistic wealth. And, you know, it was my editor who looked at the manuscript and she was like, oh my gosh, this is holistic wealth. This is exactly what I'm seeing from your experience. And I thought, wow, like if, if, you know, if I can help others with this kind of framework, then I think that's a kind of a, a system for us being able to gain resilience and resourcefulness mm -hmm. in these times of difficulty. As you were talking, you said, um, at the time you had no idea, you know, you were just trying to figure things out. And I think that's such a common experience. It is so true that as we experience things and we navigate them, I don't know that we always understand the value of what we're learning. And I think it's so great that someone looked at what you were learning and said, oh my gosh, this is something that would benefit other people. And you talked about gaining resilience and getting strength from the inside. And I love that you actually talked about intuition and knowing in your own heart what is best. Because it is true that those that love us want us to be safe and happy and protected. They're doing what they think is going to be, quote, good for us. And, and maybe on some level it is good, but good, better, best. I think when we have a knowing about what we need to do, it's great that you had the confidence or maybe you were just so emotionally <laughs> through the ringer that you didn't, maybe you didn't think that hard about it and you just instinctively thought, nope, I need to do this thing. But it sounds like for you, that sabbatical was really the most powerful thing that you did. It sounds like that kind of got your feet back underneath you. So what did your sabbatical look like? What did you do during that year? It's so amazing what I did through that year because I, I didn't even know how this was going to unfold. 
And so I, you know, as I say in the book, like I took one year unpaid and unpaid leave from work. And I went to Jamaica for a year and I didn't have anything plotted out for the year. I put my, my sons in like a nice little um, school and I started doing so many different things on a creative level. Cause then what I realized on my sabbatical was that my creativity just got, I mean, it, it just increased tenfold things that I hadn't done in years and skills that I didn't know I had anymore. I found them again. And this is the thing about when we take time to renew and to recharge it's part of how we really realize what we're good at and the things we're gifted at. Cause sometimes we're, you know, we're going through our daily paces and we don't have time for anything else. And so this is what this time allowed me. And so I ended up, you know, doing a lot of charity work. I hosted a national television show with a lot of these young artists. Um, and you know, we did charity work and reached out to so many people to help them achieve their dreams. And this is how I met some of the people that are even referenced in the book. And so that work made me realize that there's a whole facet of myself that I wasn't even tapping into. Here I was trying to recover from something so tragic and I was now immersed in trying to give back and in trying to give back, it really helped me in terms of gaining new meaning to my life and new purpose. And I realized that I had so many skills that had laid dormant and so many things I could do to help humanity, to help um, people. And that's what I did. And the book goes into much further details about what that looked like and how it unfolded. But it was, you know, people are writing similar books now um, about the same thing, because I think everybody's coming to the realization that, you know, sometimes it's stepping back and stepping away that will allow us to move forward. Um, Not necessarily just diving headfirst and just, you know, thinking that, you know, things happen, we can just, it's, it's actually taking a step back. And in taking a step back, we take, we take two steps forward because that's kind of, you know, what I experienced going through that. Isn't that just so counterintuitive, right? Yes. Keisha, it's like, okay, I'm going to step back and step away so I can make progress. But what I'm hearing you say is, what the stepping back was, it wasn't like you laid on the sofa and had bonbons, right? It wasn't like a disconnection stepping back. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It was diving headfirst into taking the pressure and taking, you know, all the emphasis off myself and giving it somewhere else. And I feel like, and this is why I talk about in the book, you know, I have one whole chapter on this. This is why I feel like giving and giving others we giving to others, we receive so much back because not only are we, you know, 
channeling um, our energies towards something good and, and much more bolder and bigger than ourselves and what we're going through. But we pick up so much from that that we can use in our own lives. And, and, and so that's, that, that was a tremendous experience for me. That's interesting because the stepping back, I think sometimes, especially when it comes to emotions, we can't really predict how long it's going to take us to um, wrap our minds around things. And we don't even really know what those emotions are sometimes, right? I mean, shock, shock Mm -hmm. had to be your first experience, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's where the sabbatical was so genius because Mm -hmm. um, I had interviewed a woman and she did, she just dug in. That was her way of coping was to Mm -hmm. dig in and get to work. Her husband was murdered in front of her. Oh no. And she ended up creating a school on the East coast in honor of her husband. Yes. And she had shared how she was just doing the next thing, but she was in shock, a large portion of that journey for her. And so as I'm Mm -hmm. listening to your story, I'm thinking, the sabbatical is a very, um, like I said, it's counterintuitive to the world because we're like, you know, people want you to feel better and get better soon. But I don't know that that's realistic mm-hmm. when it comes to grief, right? Mm-hmm. And so yes. navigating that grief in a way to give yourself mm-hmm. space and like you said, step back. That's a really incredible thought mm-hmm. is I, you know, I'm processing it and thinking, wow, because pressure in life. I mean, just you and I living life right now and having this conversation, we're on a time constraint. We have things to do and places to go and you don't have time to think and process and feel. And when you do, it's usually like you said at night when you should be sleeping and you have insomnia because now your brain's like, oh, you stopped. So here, let me, (laughs) let me have my moment, right? Yes. Yes, no, navigate that physical side of your grief and and all of that. Yeah, well, that's where the sabbatical came in even more handy because here I was in a different cultural context, um, eating more organic, wholesome food, going to the beach on weekends, spending more time in nature, in the sun, and in a tropical paradise. And so, um, that part of it was extremely important for me because then even my eating habits drastically changed. You know, like I, I was able to, the place where I stayed was on like a, a quarter acre of just fruit trees and, and, and all these lovely things that you could just pick and eat and cook. And so um, it was vastly different. And, but it was almost like it was there to ensure my survival and was there to ensure my healing. And so I talk about that in the book a lot too, because the physical aspect is so important. Um, you know, it, 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 it takes a while to nurture the body back to, to, to full health after something like that. And it's very important. It's one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot with grief. I find we talk more about the emotional side, not the physical side. And the physical side is so important. And that's how the sabbatical helped me too, is that I was able to eat healthier, exercise more. And I mean, this is something that we all can do. You know, we don't necessarily have to take a sabbatical to do that. 
but at least once people are in the zone of reading the book and realizing that here are things that I can do. And, and, and you know, I, in the book, I talk about having an intentionally designed life because this is something that became evident to me on sabbatical. It was just like, wow, I really, even though I wasn't consciously knowing what I was doing, I stepped out in a way that allowed me to heal physically, mentally, um, and emotionally. And going to the places that I did and eating the type of food that I did and interacting with, with people that, you know, I, I, I had a chance to interact with really helped me on that process. You talk about healing physically. And one of the things that I'm a big, I guess you would say I'm a big, um, promoter of is that whole idea of alignment, you know, with our mind, body, and spirit and not in a woo woo way, but scientifically understanding that our mind has so much power over our body and the thoughts that we think and the things that we allow to have dominion in Mm -hmm. our mind, Mm -hmm. it impacts our emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. And so the body responds to the brain's impulses. And if we are stuck in grief, and grief is a process, like you have to move through and actually experience each one of those levels of grief Mm -hmm. and everybody Mm -hmm. moves differently. And sometimes wouldn't you agree you move back and forth, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you get a little stuck there, Mm -hmm. but our bodies store memories. They store emotions. You know, you get tension in your neck, you get pains in your stomach because your stomach is your second gut. And so I 150% agree that, you know, mindset definitely sets you up for success or difficulty or failure, Mm -hmm. but we have to remember that there's three things happening. We're an emotional, physical, and spiritual person and Mm -hmm. how we make sure that we're nurturing each of those parts of our being so that we can, like you said earlier, you know, gain resiliency. Mm -hmm. Because for some people, I think it's easy to do what you said and just, you kind of push, right? Mm -hmm. You're just like, I'm just going to push forward. But I think what I hear you saying is when we do that, we're kind of denying the full physical and emotional experience of grief. And if you Mm -hmm. can find, if you can't take a year sabbatical, maybe that intentional created time, right? Mm -hmm. You can. And tell me a little bit about, because I'm really curious about that creativity piece. What was Mm -hmm. it that you discovered about yourself through that grieving process that you really realized, hey, this is Keisha too. Where did this part of Keisha go and how did you bring that back? Yeah, you know, in the book I mentioned how as a child I loved the arts. You know, I loved drama and dance and theater and that's something that I did um, all the way up to university. And and I had forgotten that part because, you know, you, 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 you get a job, you start working, you have kids, you get married, you're not thinking about the arts. You're thinking about getting through the rat race and, you know, getting home to do homework with the kids. And this is what the sabbatical brought back to me. As soon as I started immersing myself in those things again, here I was, you know, on national television, interviewing these different artists and, you know, interacting with people who were excelling in the arts. And that's exactly what they were excelling in. This was what they were doing full time and excelling in it. And I thought, wow, isn't that amazing? 
This is something I had loved my whole entire life. I had spent my whole childhood doing these things. And here are these people in adulthood really, really excelling at it. And it brought that back. And I had a chance to, to dive in with them. And I interviewed several of them um, because, you know, like I was the host of a TV show. So I got to ask them questions. And when I asked those artists too about their journey, some of them had been through life altering setbacks too. Some some of it not related to, you know, the death of a spouse or anything like that, but other types of setbacks. Like one mentioned to me that, you know, he was in a, a car accident that, you know, almost killed him. And he had to take the time too. And so my journey had mirrored theirs in so many different ways. And I thought, wow, this is a part of the framework. This is exactly what they did to get through it as well. And so each of the experiences just worked to reinforce the other parts because then I realized that it was possible to have that type of creative side, to channel it and to nurture it into something that was very purposeful. And so, you know, you'll see a lot of that coming out in the book as well. And in terms of designing an intentionally designed life, because I think some of us, you know, we, we go through the, the ropes, we go through our days and it's the same. It's just, we go through the motions and it's just getting up every day. We go to work, we drive the same route to go, we drive the same route, come back. And we do the same thing on weekends when we go for our groceries and to run errands. And there's nothing different and there's nothing intentional. Mm. It's just going through the paces. And I realized that wasn't really how we were going to get to our purpose. That's not how, you know, it gets us from point A to point B. It gets the short-term and immediate needs fulfilled, but it, it's not the, the road to travel, to get to our purpose and to really making humanity a better place. And so there's a combination of ways that we can do that. And I outline that in the book because they're practical steps. And at the end of each chapter, there are ways and there's, you know, worksheets and, and, and questions designed to get you thinking about what you've kind of been doing and what do you really need to do? And I mean, even for those people who haven't been through any life altering setbacks, this book is still amazing because it's still going through, it's taking you through the paces of, okay, am I walking in my purpose and, and how can I find it? So many of us wonder whether we're doing that, you know, because even if I hadn't been through this, that's something that nagged me my entire um, life. It really is. And even if I had never been through this, it would have been something that continued to nag me. What this provided me with was the opportunity to take that step back. It actually forced me. And then I realized, uh-huh, this is what needs to happen. Not necessarily the setback needs to happen, but this is what we need to do to channel our purpose. This is exactly what we need to do to move forward. And so even in the book, like I outline um, how that tragedy helped me see that but for some of us, you know, we don't need to go through a setback or, for, or a tragedy to, to, to see how we need to, to be more ordered in our lives. And so this is what the book really emphasizes. So it's not like a grief book. It's not a book about, you know, the death of a spouse. It's a book about how can I have an intentionally designed life. That is, 
such an incredible perspective because I love talking about intention because life, you get one shot, it goes so fast and it just mm-hmm. goes faster and faster. And you said something and I kind of paraphrased it. You said, going through the paces doesn't get us to our purpose. Mm-hmm. And do you find that a lot of people aren't awake to even the desire of having a purpose? Like everybody has that. I think we just lose it. Like you said, in the busyness of life and the, like you said, doing the same thing over and over again. And, but you talked about not just survival, but healing. And I think that the shift, the beautiful gift in that tragedy was it forced a shift you had to have a different perspective. You, you had no choice but to do something different. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a gift in that, even though, you know, I'm so sorry that you had to feel that level of grief and so fast and so close to having another mm-hmm. child that, you know, your body wasn't even back to, to the normal Keisha body at that point. Yes. So yes. There were layers to what you were experiencing. Oh, yes. Yeah. So many layers. So many layers. Yeah, for sure. But that idea that, you know, if we're going through the paces, that's a bit of a survival, that's a bit of a survival mindset. That's survival mindset. And it's so amazing that you say that because that's exactly what I say in the book. Like, I don't call it the survivor mindset. It's kind of like, almost like a a scarcity mindset. It's amazing. Like I've been doing so many interviews and this is what we've been coming to the conclusion with is, you know, these things, these immediate near-term things, you know, they're good. They get the, the bills paid, you know, and we move through the motions and we think, yeah, you know, like I'm living. Um, but these aren't the things that really set us on a path to our purpose. These aren't the things that really, that, that make us resilient. These aren't the things that make us resourceful. The things that make us resilient and resourceful are some of the things I talk about in the book in terms of what I found on that sabbatical, what I was able to do, because it's when we have that time to think and the time to step back um, and reconsider, that's when we realize what it is we really should be doing. And so we get caught up and we, we go in survivor mode and that survivor mode to the detriment of many of us, you know, it, it doesn't serve us in the way we think it's serving us. It really doesn't. And it's amazing that with each interview, like we both come up with the same things, but it's great. Cause like, I feel like, this is exactly what I want to tell people. And this is exactly the message. And I want everyone to know, because I feel like all of us have that nagging feeling. Like we all know deep down inside that this can't be it for us. This just can't be it. And I know we know that there is something better and greater for each one of us. Something that we really just need to grab hold of and just take charge in our own lives and claim it. And so this is exactly what I want us to, 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 to be able to do after, after reading that book and, and really sinking our teeth into, because I think this is so personal, uh, you know, for each person and it's so unique, you know, and I talk about in the book, the story of self, because it's, it's, it's grounded in the, you know, our story of self, in our experiences, who we are, our values, what we want from life, what we want our mission to be. And so, um, 
when we have a chance to think about that, to chew through that, then I think it puts us on a path to, to thinking about how to, to implement that in our lives. So yeah, that's, that's exactly it. It's one of those things where when we are stuck in survival mode, we really have almost like a blindness to purpose and a blindness yeah. to mission. It yeah. makes it almost impossible to see it because yeah. I have to do this. I have exactly. to do that. Yes. And I fight that myself. It's like, I do have to do certain things. There are tasks in my life that I have the unique responsibility to take care of, you know, and it's a season, but it doesn't take up 24 hours of my day. And so I get to choose how I perceive these tasks and what I do with the rest of my time. And recently, Keisha, this is really interesting. I love art myself. Mm -hmm. And, but I've always wanted to paint, but mm -hmm. I put this like expectation there of it looking amazing right off the top. And clearly that's not how it works, <laughs> but you know, we get in this uh, performance driven outcome driven world that we live in and mm -hmm. we don't leave space for the mess that it takes yes. to get where yes. we need to go. We're constantly yes. trying to clean up the mess, but not necessarily process the mess. And so what I'm hearing in your message is, I use this analogy all the time, but how do you dance with the mess? Don't just try to stuff it. Don't just try mm -hmm. to get rid of it. But the process that you went through was through, right? Yes. <laughs> the answer was through it, not avoiding exactly. it, not stuffing it or whatever. Exactly. And, and you're right. It's getting through the mess and sorting through it and not not abandoning it. I totally agree with you when you say that, you know, sometimes we start something, it gets messy and we think, yeah, maybe that's not it. But that's, that's something that we need to continue working through because a lot of us, you know, like we, we give up on something when it doesn't seem to be going our way. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't meant to be or that, you know, it was never going to be successful or it was never going to be good. It just means that just like everything else in life, the path isn't straightforward. And, and so you're right. It's going through, you know, going through it, not avoiding it and seeing where it leads us, um, which is what I did headfirst and, and came out of it with this framework and with my thoughts so well put together and with everything so clear to me that I kid you not, like if I had not done that, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. Like it, it just would never materialize the way it did because I had to take that step back to make sense of it. And I'm kind of like a systems person. Like I like to put everything into like a big perspective, like a systems wide thing. And that's what I did with this. And I think it's so powerful because it can help so many people going through what um, they're going through. But if I didn't take the steps that I did, it wouldn't have been anything like this. I think I would have been able to, you know, probably say, yeah, you know, you'll go through your grief and you'll be, but my message wouldn't be anywhere as powerful, anywhere as coherent, anywhere as organized and impactful if I hadn't taken the time. And that's so interesting. Again, I keep using the word counterintuitive, but that feels counterintuitive, doesn't it? It does. To, to really um, stop instead of 
pick up yourself by your bootstraps and push on, just make it happen. Yeah. yeah. But the thing I'm hearing you say, and I think is true, is that we have to give ourselves space. And I think it's good self-care to hold that space for ourselves. Because I think when you're going through grief, it's some people will hang with you, but most people can't because they're going back to their version of life and they mm-hmm. don't have the capacity or maybe they don't, they're not supposed to have the capacity to hold that space for you. Mm-hmm. Those who do, it's a beautiful gift. But at the end of the day, it's you and your grief and your process. And how are you going to get to a place where your life is healthy and whole, right? So that you can live a life that feels worthy. And and may I say, I'm sure that having the loss of a husband so suddenly, so early in life, right after the birth of a child, that has to be one of those life-altering experiences that just snaps you into into like, holy cow, mm-hmm. life isn't a guarantee. No, what am exactly. I going to do with it? Exactly. And it's, it's, you're at that point where you're wondering, um, what do I do now with two young babies? Um, cause I had a three-year-old and an eight week old. I really had to take a step back. I mean, when you think about it on a practical level, there's daycare, there's work, there's everything with burying a husband and in the midst of that two babies. So when you think about it, there's just no real, there's not a lot of wiggle room there when that happens to you, when you're so young and you're at the stage where you're just starting a family and you haven't gone through the stage where your kids are in university yet, or they're off, you know, by themselves as adults, you you still need to figure out daycare. You still need to figure out how you'll pick them up from school. I mean, there's a lot of practical things here that will that will require some form of serious accommodations, you know, to get through the next couple of days. I mean, even for me, just getting through the funeral with two young babies was giant. It was huge. And then I had to figure out, okay, you know, like I have a day job. How am I going to do this on a practical level? And, you know, like it's, it's so different for each of us, depending on where we are in our life stage and what our family life looks like and the type of jobs we have. And, but that's that for me, like I, I really, you know, I was really forced to think about, okay, how do I make this work? How do I make my life work in terms of, as you said, taking the self-care and the time after just giving birth eight weeks ago, still recovering from that physically um, and, and figuring out how to take care of two babies now. So I, yeah, self-care became huge for me because I, I just, you know, like I, I had, I didn't have a choice. I had to take a step back to do that. And so, you know, it, it, it really, really depends on, on where we are, what stage and, and, and sometimes life forces you to make the decisions that you have to make because it's practically, it just can't work the way it used to work. There's just not enough support, not enough for it to work that way. And so, yeah. And so you make the best decisions you can at the time, but I feel like that decision for self-care for, um, you know, taking the time to really think about how to push forward instead of just going headfirst is, is something that I would recommend for sure meaning stepping back and holding space finding finding a bubble of <laughs> a bubble of just be 
yes. instead of full of filling that bubble full of things you must do. Yes, exactly. So you said make the best decisions you can at the time. So it sounds like there's a lot of um, self-compassion and um, permission that you would have to give yourself. Exactly. And you'll see that in the book, you know, I have a whole chapter on not comparing yourself to others. I had to give myself full permission and I had to say, okay, now listen, like you cannot even go there because now you're a single mom with two babies and everyone has their kids in, you know, several different extracurricular activities, but know that you can't, you, you might not be able to do that right now. You might be able to do it at another time to that full extent, but not right now. And in not doing that, not compare yourself and not feel inadequate and not feel like your kids are going to suffer for it and not feel like you are going to face some permanent setback because that's the, the other type of mindset that we're going to need to get us through this is like, just remember this is, this is temporary. And even though when you're going through it, it may seem like it has defined you. It doesn't have to, you know, it will get better and it will change and, 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 and there will be, you know, like a light at the end of the tunnel. Like it, it just give yourself that permission, give yourself that space to just be like, you know what, like, I won't be able to do this now. And, it, and I have a chapter on saying no, you know, I, I won't be able to do this now. And I can't say yes to a lot of things right now, but that's okay. Because that's a part of holistic wealth is being able to say, you know what, this is, this is what I want. This, these are the things I can say yes to. And these are the things I can say no to. And I have to say no in order to, to, to prioritize something else. And so that's, that's an important part of it as well. So as you're talking about holistic wealth and saying yes and no, I'm thinking in terms of the word picture of banking, you know, mm -hmm. we're making deposits and withdrawals with every yes and no that we, that we give, right? Exactly. So part of your process and grief is, you know, it ebbs and flows, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And I think there may have been when the yes came, potentially you were in a different place than you are right now. And maybe that yes needs to change to a no and that permission to, have people around you understand yes it's not an integrity issue because i i always yes. look at things from an integrity standpoint but sometimes there's just a, a humanity that's happening and yes and we have to be so aware and try to be so aware of where we really are at and what really is the best thing is it to go do the thing whatever it is or is it to nope, I, I need a cup of tea and a candle or I need a bubble bath or I need a massage or what is it that we need to make sure that we're not spinning out of balance somewhere? And yes, we're never exactly. In balance, right? Exactly, exactly. Because like that's a big part of the book is being in balance and ensuring that we are and what do we need to do to ensure that we have that balance, especially when you're going through a life transition whatever the transition is, it's really just trying to keep that balance, you know, and trying to, 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 um, to make things work. And, and so, yeah, that's a, fun, a fundamental part of it. You know, I, th I often think we, we're going to be living life anyway. Lord willing, we get another day. Do I just want life to happen to me or do I want to have some kind of say 
and how life goes. Because like for you, of course, that's not what you would have had happen to you. But once it did happen, then there's this new paradigm where you can just give in and give up. Or you can figure out what is the best version of life now and how do we get to that? I guess it's kind of like homeostasis. When mm-hmm. things are going the way they go, it's, you know, we're in a state of homeostasis. But when something traumatic comes in, there is no homeostasis. Mm-hmm. So how do you get back to that kind of feeling of, okay, the world is not spinning out of control. And right. there is a sense of direction. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that's got to be difficult because our emotions are so powerful. Yes. And especially at that time, they're even more powerful and they spin out of control and they can really, you know, get the best of us. And um, that's something I talk about in the book too. And sometimes there's negative messages piled on top of that, right? And so many different messages coming at us from different angles and trying to sort through those and figure out for ourselves which ones we're going to take and which ones we're going to discard as like, yeah, that's not helping me right now. Mm-hmm. That's not going to serve my purpose. That's not going to allow me to live a holistically wealthy lifestyle. And I talk about that. Some of them are toxic relationships. Some of them are like just so much, so much. And so part of that is learning to sift through all of that mm-hmm. and, and taking the best of what we can for ourselves and absorbing those and releasing the negative messages, um, wherever, you know, they're coming from, but just releasing that and not making that our script. Cause then if we make that our script, mm. then we, you know, there's more harm than good. And, you know, I talk mm. about that a bit too, but that's a, that's an important part for sure. Yeah. Who's writing your script. And we exactly. really, really need to be thinking about that even without the traumatic experience, but exactly. We have actually almost come to the end of our hour. And of course, we have one more thing. We've talked about a lot of things and I want to thank you so much for sharing your journey. It's, an, it's a powerful message and um, you bring such joy and light with it. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so since we've talked about so much and you've shared a lot about your experience and your perspective on it and what you've done, what three things could someone take? Like if you could give them three things, just start here or use these three things, these ideas or these tools, what would those be? Yeah. So I would say start by, um, you know, taking a step back and, you know, really assessing where you are, where you want to go. And in doing so, I would say, think about your mission and values in life and, and what you want that to look like. And so if, you know, somebody was a spectator at, or if you were a spectator at your own funeral, what would you want the key themes to be? What would you want people to be saying about you? And I would start from that in terms of deciding what do I want going forward? What do I want my mission to be? And then afterwards, I would look about implementing that and thinking about goals with wisdom. You know, there's a chapter in the book called Goals with Wisdom. And I, I state it that way because no matter what roadblocks come, 
if you can think about your goals and design them in a way where, you know, you've built them with detours up ahead in terms of planning, then you'll be on a solid footing. Um, But those are the three things I would say, because, you know, that mission, that's what differentiates us in life. And it's all based on who we are and our uniqueness. And we can claim that for ourselves. So we don't need to compare ourselves to anybody or think we need to do what anybody else is doing. We can rest assured and be confident that this is mine. This is my unique road. And and this is how I want to design it. And because holistic wealth is about having an intentionally designed life. And in doing so, you're on your way to, to designing something that's uniquely yours. And so those are the three things I would, I would leave with today in terms of, um, you know, people stepping forward in life and, and really claiming what they want and really living how they want to live. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much, Keisha, for saying yes and for sharing your story with my tribe today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great great being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure to host you and to to help amplify your story because I think the message of living an intentionally designed life is such a powerful way to bring purpose to what we do from day to day. Yeah, no, thank you so much. That's that's absolutely correct. And I'm so happy that we had this conversation. It really felt like, you know, just um, talking through and, and, and coming to our own very good conclusions was just amazing. So thank you. My pleasure. Today I have been talking with Keisha Blair. She is the author of Holistic Wealth, 32 Life Lessons to Help You Find Purpose, Prosperity, and Happiness. And if you head over to www.feminineroadmap.com forward slash episode 133, I will have links to Keisha and her book, which I highly encourage you to look into. And while you're on my website, please leave your name and email address and join my tribe so you don't miss any of these life-giving conversations. And like Keisha said, life-altering setbacks do not have to become your story. There is hope. So take the time to really think about an intentionally designed life. Step back a little. See what it is that you wish you were doing, that you've forgotten about that you love doing. Just add a little bit of that into your life and see the amazing amount of change that will come when you reconnect with who you are. Don't abandon the mess, my friends. Giving up isn't the only option. Lean in, go through the process, get this book, do a book study with your friends, get a book club together and work through this thing together because you just never know how much your life can change. Again, I want to thank you for listening to our conversation this week. I look forward to sharing another amazing person with you in our next episode. Thank you again, my friends. Have a wonderful day. Take care. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.